Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Right, good afternoon, Mr. Richard Gerber. Good afternoon, Emma, how are you? Oh, I've got jaw right. We've been talking for that long already off camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, a... got, I think we've gone through our word quota for the day, haven't we now? For the week, I think. <laughs> but uh, welcome, Richard. So those of you who haven't met you before, thank you for joining us on Naylor's Natters. Um, I'm Emma Turner doing another guest presenting uh, session for Phil, who's allowed me back despite having done some before. Um, and it's he just because he's on holiday, isn't it, Emma? Apparently, he's got, he's got a broken microphone and no Wi-Fi, so I think oh. it's times desperate measures, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, he asked me, who do you want to have on? And without a shadow of a doubt, without any hesitation, it was, I want my friend Richard Gerber on here, because more people need to hear what he's got to say. So, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And for those of you... <laughs> You won't be watching this because it's audio only. I'm looking at a green screen of Richard's cupboard. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> a very long story. He is more techie than me and he's got a green screen of his own bookshelf. Yeah, honestly, beautifully Isn't curated, it? you'll notice. I like the pictures, very nice. <laughs> right, so we kind of need to get on some questions. So I'm not going to ask you what you do now because we're going to get on to that. But I'm going to ask you about your journey into teaching, which I've heard before, but other people haven't. Mm -hmm. It always makes me smile. So it's just a kind of a your journey into and through teaching. Okay. Okay. So I, um, <laughs> I'm not one of those people, I have to be honest, I'm not one of those people that when I was kind of 12, 13 years of age, had a, a visitation from the teaching angel. Uh, and <laughs> that made me believe I should be a teacher. Um, I wasn't given gold, frankincense, myrrh and a national curriculum. Um, I, 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 um, I actually wanted to be an actor. Well, I wanted to be a lawyer originally, as it happens. And as luck would have it, when I was in my early teens, um, my mum, my mum and dad were getting divorced. Um, if you knew my parents, you'd know why that was lucky. But anyway, as a result, my mum got me some work experience working with her solicitor. And um, although the, the, the desire to be a lawyer faded really quickly because I realised how difficult the job was, so um, I kicked that into touch. Um, having watched Crown Court as a kid, and I wonder if there's anyone of an age that will remember that programme, because um, I just thought being a lawyer was going to be very cool. But anyway, what I decided instead was I was going to be an actor, because I could do the performing without the uh, academia and intellect. Um, so that was my next, that was my next great um, desire, and, and all based weirdly on me being the Virgin Mary in my school play. Um, don't ask how that happened either, but all I will say is I refused to hold Joseph's hand because he smelled. Um, so that was that was the grounding for why I wanted to be a professional actor. So that lasted for a while until after I left school and, and got into rep in London. The biggest flaw to that plan was essentially I was rubbish. So I eventually found myself <laughs> I eventually found myself back at college um, studying um, English, um, writing and drama and stuff like that. It was a great combined studies degree. Uh, and in the first year of my degree, I met um, a, a young woman who I desperately wanted to date. 
um, and she was training to be a teacher. In fact, she was in, because I'd messed about for a couple of years, she was a couple of, you know, she was coming to the end of her degree. I'm really hoping this ends with that, and it was my wife. <laughs> so am I, Emma. So am I. Uh, that would be funny <laughs> if it's not, wouldn't it? Oh, well, anyway, I don't know. Yeah. Where is this going? <laughs> so this is where it's going, right? So... <laughs> So cut a very long and convoluted story short, I told her teaching was the best thing on earth just to score a date. Um, she remembered that years later when I finished my first degree and she enrolled me on a postgraduate certificate of education and said, I remember you telling me years ago, you thought so off you go. Um, and that's how I got into teaching. And yes, it did end happily because we're celebrating uh, on Thursday of this week, we're celebrating our 27th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. So, um, I lasted longer with her than I did in the classroom. <laughs> but that's not because I fell out of love with either. So anyway, I got into teaching at that point. I loved it. And I was one of those people. And I know there'll be other people listening to this who'll be very similar for one reason of their journey or another, who found myself in a classroom at the start of the 1990s as a teacher and just knew that's where I belonged. It was kind of that epiphany where you you suddenly think, what was I doing mucking about for all those years? Because actually, I, nothing could make me happier than where I am right now. You know, the energy of a class of, of students, the creative challenge of, of working out how to teach what we had to teach in ways that would really stimulate and drive their imaginations and, and all the rest of it. And so I started my teaching career. I was very lucky in a way, because I wasn't like overly ambitious, I don't think. But I, I got into teaching just around the time there was a massive, um, there were massive budget cuts, which meant schools were going to have to lose teachers in large numbers. Um, and so it was that time in the early 90s where they offered um, relatively young teachers who were in their early 50s, incredible early retirement packages, basically to get them off the books. And that was going to be the best way to. And so in a way, I started in a career at a time of a massive vacuum, which meant that within um, three years, I'd been promoted to senior teacher, whatever that meant at the time in my school, because it was before we had um, grades and, you know, and, and then after five years, I got a job as a, as a deputy um, head teacher in a really large primary school in um, a tough former mining part of Derbyshire in Ripley. Um, loved it. Moved after a few years from there, I was seconded actually by my local authority to develop a program to motivate specifically demotivated boys in reading and writing across all of the age ranges. So I went on secondment to do that for a while. And, and while I was there, um, love is a real theme of my whole life, actually, because what happened was only after a few months of doing that job, I was asked to go into one particular school to get them involved in this program um, and walked through the doors of this big primary school in Long Eaton and fell in love in the same way. I know not with a person. My <laughs> wife will be pleased to know with a place in the same way that, you know, if you go house hunting and yeah. you look at 10, 12 different houses. Right. And they're all the same on paper, but you walk into one. And for me, it's always, whenever I've done that, I can imagine Christmas in a particular house and that's the, <laughs> the, the deal sealer. You know, the roof could be falling down. Or, but if I can imagine a Christmas tree and having found then that's... And it was a similar kind of feeling walking into Grange Primary School. Um, so, and as luck would have it, they hadn't had a, um, a permanent head for 18 months. The last one had gone off on long-term sick. They'd had, an, I think, eight heads in 10 years. 
there's more dangerous place than uh, a miss episode of Miss Marple. You know, you you were going to get it if you were in this. Is it uh, like a revolving door? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> in, uh, and and actually, uh, I found out later that the staff took a. They had a book. They had bets on how long. No. Oh so, yeah. I think they had me down for a month when I first got the job. So I, anyway, I got, I, I applied for the headship and got it mainly because the school was so bad. It was slated for the then government's Phoenix program. Now the Phoenix program was under the Labour government, an idea where if the school was just proving too hard to shift, you shut it down, um, you sack everybody, you rebrand the school, you rehire everybody, including a skilled new board, you give the school a new uniform, and hey presto, everything changes. It's so typical new labor, but there you go. And um, I didn't know that the, the, the school was on that, that slated plan. So I applied for the job and as luck would have it, got it because I was the only living human being that actually applied for the damn job. <laughs> so that moment when you get the job and your ego goes into overdrive, right? Because I'm a head teacher. You're walking down the street thinking I'm a head teacher. And then you realise you were the only applicant. Suddenly you go from hero to zero very quickly. He's like, can um, you breathe, Mr Gerber? I feel pardon? Like, can you write your own name, Mr You've got it! <laughs> you, you've in. You're in. Honestly. <laughs> the fact that you've got your own teeth means you're the prime candidate. And a pulse. You're exactly. <laughs> you're in. Right? And so I found myself as the head of Grange. And that, that's really, you know, where everything changed for me as a professional, because um, we as a community, not me, um, the community did remarkable things over the, the, the following seven years. Well, actually quicker than that. To, to, I mean, to cut very long story, we might get into it in the interview. Within 18 months, the school had gone from being in the worst performing 5% nationally to the top percent, top 3% nationally. Um, and that was on data and test results and, and everything else. We'd won the UNESCO World Education Award um, and everything had changed. And so the, what that community did was showed the unbelievable potential of any school community if you galvanize and build a purpose and, and a sense of professionalism. Um, but obviously what that did for me completely unplanned was suddenly I was thrust into the spotlight because I was the figurehead I hadn't done it but as the head you're the you know yeah and suddenly everyone wanted to know what our secret was and the truth was Emma I didn't know we've just <laughs> done our job you know we've just <laughs> done what we believed was right but after seven years of people pulling and pushing me around to talk here and there because this was before social media so when people wanted to know about practice you had to physically go and tell them about yeah. practice right um, and so the more and more that happened, eventually it got to a stage where I decided I had to make a choice, you know, to stay in the school and be, do the job I was paid to do, or to have an adventure and, and try this new world that was opening up. And I chose the second option, but it was hard. And actually it comes, I'll finish this long-winded answer to the question where it all began, because it ended with the same woman because I was procrastinating for a long time. Well, what happens if I leave? You know, I've got a good salary, a great job. I love the job. We've got young children, a mortgage, all the stuff all of us have got. And, and she turned around to me and said something quite extraordinary. I mean, she is the strongest human being I know. Um, she said, Richard, you have spent years telling children to take risks and seize opportunity. She said, you could stay at the school, but wouldn't that be, um, wouldn't that be, a little bit of hypocrisy because you're telling kids to seize opportunity and take yeah. risks. 
She said, if I were you, I think you should seize the opportunity and go out there and try for a while to see what you're telling these kids they should be spending their lives doing. And so that, that's why I took the hardest decision of my career, which was to leave Grange, um, which was now 13 years ago, 2007, and go on a new journey. And so that's what I've been doing since. And it's hard to leave a place you love. It's really oh my God. Hard. It's, like, it's, like a, it's like a bereavement. I know when I left um, my previous school, Latimer, after about six months, I kind of came out of this fog and my mm. mother said, I think you've been grieving. I think you've, I think you've been going through a period of grieving because it's, it's, you genuinely love the bones of a place. It's a really difficult decision to make. It is. And, and the other thing is, you know, I, I knew I was going to miss the energy of the kids. I knew yeah. that was going to be the thing I'd miss more than anything else. What I hadn't anticipated as much, and maybe it says more about me, I don't know, was I hadn't realized how much I'd missed the camaraderie and mm -hmm. how important the relationships I had in that school were, not just to my professional life, but actually to my personal balance. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that I think that that was the bit that really hit me hardest, that despite everything else I've had the, the luck to do over the last, well, decade and a bit, um, that sense of belonging is still something I miss now more than anything on earth and, and the relationships of that second professional family that you have. Yeah, and it, it is a family. I, I, I talk a lot as well about teaching being like a family. Mm. And it is, your, your school... Um, colleagues are like your immediate family and then you've got your extended family and <laughs> the weird comes you never see branches but are really good fun when you do see them and, and it's it's um it's just brilliant to be, to be part of it but on your adventure now you must have met well I know you've met some absolutely amazing leaders yeah yeah I can see one in a photograph behind <laughs> you I'm gonna ask you who's the greatest leader you ever met and, and what made them great but also would they have made a great teacher well here's the really interesting thing because despite all of the incredible people i've had the good fortune to meet and we'll, we'll get on to some of them i'm sure as we go through when i look back on my career the person who taught me the most about leadership was a 10 year old child in my first ever class um, and I'm not being soft here. It's true. It's a story I told when I did my um, TEDx speech uh, about a little boy called Gary who had a whole range of special needs. I'll never forget, you know, you know, when when you get your class transfer, particularly when you start teaching and you get given the names of the kids you're going to have the following, particularly yeah. in primary school, because they're your class. Right. A bit like a tutor group. Um, and you know which, and you, you ask around, so what's so-and-so like, and what, what are they like? And because you want to get to know each child, right? And I remember this, these were in the days before special needs, just so that people understand the, the context here. I remember the teacher that had had um, Gary the year before saying to me, oh, he's a lovely boy, but he's, he's, you know, he's not got it up here, but he's a lovely lad. Um, and I thought, okay. Anyway, day one came round of my, first year as a class teacher, Gary was in the class. Um, 
And from the first time I met him, I realized this boy was unbelievable special, unbelievably special. And, and it was his human behaviors and his humanity and his emotional intelligence which struck me around leadership. So despite all his multitude of problems, and he had, you know, he really were complex needs. He was dyspraxic, he was dyslexic, he had a number of motor um, issues, he, but he was remarkable. Anyway, the first week of the school year, our head at the time um, would always do something to bind the whole school community back together again at the beginning of the year. It was pre some of the real pressures we have now. So his passion was, we've been apart for six weeks. We need to bring the community together as one before we move forward into our learning journey. So week one of the school year, interestingly, was always the charity week. And he would, you know, find a charity and get the charity in and they'd talk to the kids. Mm -hmm. And the whole week would be scheming and raising money and all sorts of activities. It's a great idea, really. Anyway, the charity he got was, I think it was a charity called Smiles, and they were raising money for, the, um, for an orphanage in Romania, because it was around the time of the horrendous orphanage yeah. scandal in Romania. And um, so we were going to raise money. The, they, the guy came in, two of them came in, they, they did their presentation in assembly, and then the rest of the week was the kids were off doing various things, right? And um, on the Friday, as is always the way in charity weeks, um, you know, that, that incredible moment. And I've always questioned children's intelligence over this, Emma, because the Friday was non-uniform day. So in other words, you know, when, when are we going to find a child who actually questions the, demo, uh, the democracy of, so hold on a minute, miss, you're going to make me pay for the right to wear my own clothes. Right? <laughs> That's the moment I know we've succeeded with kids. But you know what they're like, right? They love non-uniform day. And, and so I'm sat there doing my register before assembly. Um, and because as teachers, we always, you know what it's like. If you're late for assembly, God help you. Because everyone else looks at your class. Oh, you. Well, uh, one school I was at, if you were the last class in, everybody just slow clap. There, there you go, right? And well, the, the school I was in, the teachers would sit there like this and tut. Right. Oh, it's the new teacher. Oh, 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 whoopee, the new teacher. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, right, I can't take time because I had, you know, you collect the money. We do so many things with registration in, right? Yeah. I can't, I haven't got time to do the money separately. So I worked out this brilliant idea, which was I got a tin, right? And I said to the kids, right, as I call out your name for the register, you know, I want to, I'm here. Are you, are you dinners? Are you, what are you for lunch? Yeah. Whatever, right. And at the same time, you've got to walk up. I'm not going to look up from my register. And if I hear a clink in the tin, I know you've put some money in for you. That was the genius time-saving non-uniform thing, right? So I'm doing the register and everyone clink, clink, clink. I get to Gary and Gary comes up to my desk. I can hear him kind of walking and there's a thud. Anyway, he hasn't put a few pennies down. He's given me his entire money box. I know. And I said to him, you can't do that, Gary. He said, no, I really can. And you know when a kid's about to go off on one and you haven't got time because you've got to get mm -hmm. to assembly. So I could see from Gary's face he was about to go off on one. I thought, okay, fine. What I'll do is take them all into assembly and phone mum because maybe Gary doesn't understand. Remember, day one, yeah. I've got all this kind of um, this bias in my head about Gary, right? So anyway, I phoned mum. Cut, cut, cut a long story short, Emma. Um, she said, no, you've got to take the money. There was nearly a hundred quid in this thing. And oh Gary didn't come from a posh family at all. Um, 
It was nearly 100 quid. And it turns out that Gary had been saving his money for over a year to buy a bicycle. Because mum had always said to her, she was a single mum, two kids. She'd always said to the kids, if you want something in life, you have to earn it. So he'd been spending the year saving like birthday, Christmas money, but also cutting lawns and washing cars and, and to buy himself a new bicycle, right? And she said last night, he cried, Mr. Gerber, when I had this conversation with him. He said, mum, don't make me buy that bicycle now because knowing where the money could have gone, I'll never enjoy riding it. You have to take the money. Um, oh. I know. So you can imagine, right, that, that strength of character taught me more about human league because this was a kid with real problems of his own. And, yeah. and that absolute commitment to other people was so genuine and so powerful. Um, yeah, he, he taught me more about what it meant to be a human leader than any human being of any of the people I've met in my life since. Wow. Would he have been a great teacher, do you think? Yeah, I do. And funnily enough, to, again, I won't tell you the life story because we met up. We'd met up when he was in his 30s. Oh, I'm so um, glad. I love yeah. a story like this. It was an amazing moment. I, honestly, it was so funny. I don't know if any other teachers out there have had this experience. So it, we were reconnected originally, actually, through my very first book, where I tell the story of Gary as an inspiration mm. for me. And um, somebody had read the book who knew Gary and reconnected us, like now, like, well, wow. you know, the first book had 10 years ago. And so we were going to meet in a coffee shop, right? And I'm expecting a nine-year-old Gary to shuffle through the door. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. Suddenly this like proper full-grown man walks in. And the only reason I recognized him was because he had dyspraxia. He had a very deliberate way of walking. And that's how I knew. Anyway, to cut the amazing story short, he actually now um, works as a personal fitness trainer specializing in people with physical and mental disabilities. So in a way, he is kind of a yeah. teacher, right? And he absolutely would have made a brilliant teacher because of his incredible ability to empathize. And also, I think what would have made him an amazing teacher was he understood what struggle meant. Yeah. Yeah. He would have understood how, the, how kids reacted emotionally to challenge and to vulnerability and to struggle. And, and that ability, having lived through resilience at such a level, I think he would have made a phenomenal teacher. Because it's interesting that to be a teacher, most teachers or the great you know, majority of teachers will have been those people who've sailed through school and sailed through academic work and wouldn't necessarily have had direct lived experience of academic struggle at school. So it's interesting that the, a lot of the people that we put before our children who are struggling are the two other people who've had absolutely no direct lived experience of having an academic struggle. They'll have obviously teachers will have had different sorts of struggles, but academically. But I think I think that's a really interesting point because I think you know that there, there are teachers who are academically brilliant who aren't great teachers. No. Um, and in a way, one of the other fields that I've worked in over, over the last few years is professional sport. And one of the really interesting things is often the coaches that had spectacular careers as athletes themselves before they went into coaching make yeah. lousy coaches because they don't understand yeah. why people can't do what they did. Right. And actually they, they become they don't have the emotional connective skills 
to help take people through that process for the same reason, you know? Yeah. And I think it is really interesting because when you ask me about leadership, I think of all the leaders I've met, the ones who are the most spectacular are the ones that have deep empathetic understanding of what the people they're working with are going through. Often because actually, although on the surface they look like they've been uber successful, most of them have experienced real yeah. adversity in their lives. Yeah, definitely. And it, just in your own teaching, I know that I am not a natural mathematician, mm. yet I ended up working for the National Numeracy Strategy, but I think I was a much better maths teacher because it wasn't actually the subject that came most naturally to me. I always had to think about how to work something out or how it all fitted together or how, whereas other things just kind of happened. Whereas with the maths, I really had to think about it and could almost anti anticipate much more effectively what children were going to get wrong because that's what I would have got. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely the nail on the head, isn't it? Really understanding and anticipating what challenges children are going to face is what makes a great teacher because that's then it's at that point you translate the content into something tangible which young people truly understand you know if you go in believing well this is just really important content i understand it and therefore all i've got to do is tell kids about it and what to do that's never going to be enough um and you know the, the it's why for me teaching can't just be a science it's yeah. a mix it's a we were talking about this before we say you know teaching is that incredible mix of art form and science it, it's across that there, there are so many disciplines to what it takes to be a great teacher and as well as having academic rigor and real commitment to knowledge and development of the science of teaching you have to understand that great teaching comes from the emotional connection too because ultimately um Great teachers are great leaders. What I've learned in the last decade or so is the best teachers I've ever worked with could walk into any leadership position in any organization in the world. And it's not necessarily because of the technical know-how, but it's their ability to truly connect on a human level and bring people with them that defines what makes a great leader. school leaders now going back in September if we go back whether they virtually physically however this is going to happen they're potentially going into leading an organization that's working in a way for which they weren't necessarily trained and they have no experience of because this is, this is all new the way that the schools are going to be organized and the way that we're having to work so what what do you think our school leaders at the moment need to hold on to or remember when they're going into this period of leading the organization in a setup that for which they have no, no I, I think there are a number of things i think there are so many i mean it is incredibly complex and, and let's be really clear here right now i hugely and i i just hugely admire every single one of those school leaders because in my career despite i went you know as a head i i experienced and went through a whole load of challenges nothing nothing 
was on the scale of what school leaders have, have lived through over the last few months and will continue to do for, for some time to come. But what I'd say is, don't make the mistake of over planning and structuring everything you're going to do in the effort to try and feel as in control as possible. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Because the more you do that, the more the variables are thrown at you, the more it's going to unsettle you. You've got to keep some stuff open because actually you need to understand that the more you try and control, the less in control you're going to feel actually, because the more wedded to certain methodologies you become. The second thing I think is really important as a leader is to remember right now that you are not the person that has to have the answers. You're the person that has to know how to find the answers. And that means there'll be other people in your team and your community that will have better solutions, better ideas, have better strengths um, than, than you have. And again, you know, one of the great traits of great leadership is the ability to listen. It's the one we often forget. In fact, for me, it's the greatest trait of leadership is the art of listening. So I think it's really important you don't put too much pressure on yourself to believe you are the one that has to find, have to have the answers. Yeah. You have to, you have to be in, in that situation. And also to remember that one size, and you know, I know this is a cliche, but my God, it's never been more important. One size does not fit all. Every single person coming back, whether physically or virtually, to school in September will have had totally different lived experiences of the last six to seven months. Every single one of them. Um, every child, every member of staff, every parent, grandparent, carer, everyone in your community will have had a different lived experience. So you have to be prepared to think about each of those people and the different needs they're going to have in order to help bring them back. But, you know, the, the key, the one thing you can definitely control is the clarity of the vision and values you upheld before COVID that you uphold now and you uphold in the future. And what you do is you interrogate your actions against those vision and values rather than try and pre-plan those actions. Mm. Yeah, and I really like the idea about not making assumptions about people, being vigilant, but we can't make the assumptions about because everything's been so strange and so odd. And like you say, we've, we've literally been behind closed doors and nobody knows what goes on behind those closed doors. So that- exactly. You know, there are some people who might never admit it that have actually really enjoyed the free range brain thing over the last six or seven months, right? <laughs> they will, you know, but people will feel guilty about admitting it because they've seen the adversity others have gone through. There'll be yeah. others that we won't even know have experienced loss and maybe not just physical loss, but actually they may have a relative that's, that's lost a job or, you know, um, somebody who's had been in a relationship breakdown or experienced domestic violence or a whole host. I mean, the spectrum's huge. Um, and I think we need to be aware that, that the first job as leaders when we go back in September is going to be auditing people. That's going to, the thing we're going to have to work out, and we need to give our schools space and time to do that. I think the biggest mistake will be just, right, we've got to jump back into normality, timetable lessons as quickly as possible. I'm not saying we shouldn't have that as, a, as an aim, but we need to actually take time and space because if we climb underneath each person's emotional response to the last six or seven months, in the long term, we'll build much stronger foundations moving forwards than we will if we just go, right, everybody on point A, ready, steady, go. 
a bit like when you're saying about schools being like a family. If you had a family reunion, you wouldn't start the family reunion off with anything other than how are we all? How have yeah. you been? What's been going on? You know, if you're going to build that family culture, there needs to be that family discussion, both at the, the staff family and the wider community in a way you know it goes back to what i said about my first year's experience in school with the head pre-national curriculum pre all of this stuff you know who said actually the first job is to bind the community back together again and that's how you build momentum for the year and there's something very strong in that i think maybe more pertinent now than ever before yeah um my youngest one is starting school for the first time (laughs) Whether he'll go, who knows? Absolutely no. One of those kids, won't he? He'll bounce in on day one and love it. And then it'll hit him on day two that that's it. He's got to go every day. Because kids often do that. They bound in, they have a good couple of days and then they say, right, mummy, I don't want to go. Don't fancy it tomorrow. And it's at that point you have to break to them. This is their life for the next 15 (laughs) years. This is it, sweetheart. There's no more having lunch with mummy and playing in the park. You're up there, sweetheart. No, but... um, he said his Zoom call induction, which in itself was bizarre. He loved it. I was a bit like, this is not how we do these things. But um, if if your kids, as your kids are a lot older than mine, if your children were starting school this year, what, and they're, they're beginning their journey into education, what would you want for them? Wow, that is an incredibly powerful question. I, I would want, I think, we have to learn a huge amount from the way humanity has coped with the last six or seven months, good and bad. You see, one of the things is, and I know this is a contentious viewpoint for some in education, and kind of, I I kind of apologize and don't at the same time, because I know it sounds hackneyed. Um, The one thing we've learned in the last just over decade, actually, is that the world is we can't just teach children to seek out certainty and reward them when they do. We can't continue the myth and the narrative that if they get their heads down and just do what they're told and build the the correct stream for them to go through uh, schools, exams, higher education, apprenticeship, they'll lock down a job, make their lives safe and secure. What we've learned both from the financial crisis of 2007 and eight and more recently and more powerfully, the um, coronavirus COVID crisis, is that the world is just now changing incredibly fast. And there is no such thing as locking down your life and creating a life of control and certainty. And what I'd want for my children is to be prepared better for that world than I was. And what I mean by that is I went through that traditional myth of believing that a you just make yourself indispensable at every phase, right? You do what you're told and you get a job and that job will last you for the rest of your life until you've accrued your pension and then you can retire happy, you know, with with everything around you. And I think the really important thing for me is we have to be better at helping our kids not just cope with the unexpected, but thrive in the unexpected. Um, And that means we've got to stop the narrative of do this and this will happen because that just isn't true anymore. Um, I remember um, in in my last book um, talking about Minouche Shafiq, who is a remarkable woman. Minouche is currently the um, 
lead director at the London School of Economics. And she was until quite recently touted to become the first female governor of the Bank of England. She's an absolute genius. I mean, she's a remarkable human being. Um, and she was speaking a few years ago at Dav in Davos at the World Economic Forum at a session specifically around education and the future. And something she said that day really struck me as incredibly resonant. So this was just after the seismic events of, of you know, some of the big populist events of the last few years, whether it be um, Brexit, whether it be the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil or Donald Trump in America or the rise of the extreme right in Europe. Pardon me. Um, she said, you know, the people who voted for populism aren't stupid. They're really clever. But what they've realized is that their education system has failed them and they're angry about that because they were promised things. They were promised that if they got their head down and did what they were told, made themselves invaluable in their education and then their working life, their lives would be fine for the rest of they'd earned the right to have safe, secure lives. Right. And she said, actually, the people that have voted for populist movements around the world are really good, hardworking people who are just incredibly angry because they feel they've been lied to, having done everything they were told to do. And one of the points she was making was, if we have to change the narrative, because if we don't, the continuous rise of populism, division and anger and polarization is just going to grow. And the only way we bring the world back together again and to think in a more collaborative sense is if we help prepare young people to cope and thrive better in a world of extreme and growing uncertainty and change. And so long-winded answer, I would want my children to be prepared for a world of uncertainty far better than we've prepared children in the past. Blimey. Sorry, <laughs> big answer, huh? <laughs> no, while you were thinking about that, I was thinking, so if everything's uncertain, are there any certainties? Are there any givens? Are there Death and taxes, isn't that the old saying? <laughs> I was gonna go nicer than that, I was gonna say love. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. But even then, there'll be some hard bitten amongst us who go, yeah, I thought that too. But after three years, I was divorced. <laughs> I'm thinking more of like parental love. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. An appreci appreciation of art and beauty. And you see, this is the difference between us, Emma. You're <laughs> such a lovely person. And underneath the veneer of my smile, I'm just a nasty bugger. <laughs> I'm just a cynic. <laughs> I'm just a romantic. <laughs> oh. Oh. Listen, I bought my wife a card for our 27th wedding anniversary on Thursday. Come What's on. his 27 years? I don't know. I should. If I was a romantic, I'd know, wouldn't I? Be more than no. silver, yeah, less than I don't gold. Know. I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping it's food related because we're going out for our first meal out since lockdown. I don't think it's cheese. <laughs> Trust me, using my lines, it's definitely cheese. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So my next question, well, my penultimate question was going to be kind of what are you up to apart from painting your bathroom, celebrating your wedding anniversary? Uh, well, I'm I mean, two big things at the moment. Well, three. One is I'm trying really hard to create a really good virtual offer for people, because obviously these days I spend so much of my life as a podium speaker and traveling around the place and, and hopefully sharing stuff I just passionately. You said podium speaker. But as you know, with Zoom calls, Emma, you can see the shirt on top, but you've got no idea what's <laughs> below. 
Anyway. I'm going to get into such trouble for this, aren't we? This is just a disaster. I was thinking raver. Yeah. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did that in my day when I had hair. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> completely. Um, yeah. So as well as you know, trying to trying to replicate a really good virtual offer for people that that somehow still gives people that live experience in Zoom, which is hard. Um, I'm also about to start filming today, actually. Um, I'm starting to film two courses for LinkedIn um, on their LinkedIn learning program. Um, two 10-part courses, one on mental toughness and one on smart thinking, which has been a really interesting challenge for me because it's well out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, as a keynote speaker or as an author, you have loads of time to express an opinion and, and develop an idea. Um, each each video has to be no more than four minutes long so distilling really important stuff into four minutes snappy if that's and you people listening to this will already know there's no way that Richard could do that <laughs> you know he's answered simple questions in half an hour so that's been a challenge um, and the third thing is and this is hot news really for those that are interested I've just started writing a new book um, and the working title of that book is the smarts um, a life skills toolkit for teams. So it's all about the, you know, what I'm describing as the smarts, the kind of behaviors and skills and attributes and outlooks that kids are going to need to go forward and thrive in the future we've, we've kind of briefly touched on. So um, those are some of the things that, that I'm up to at the moment, as well as now feeling really guilty and thinking I need to go out and find <laughs> out what 27 is and go and buy the correct present, Emma. <laughs> I do apologise, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been with my husband now for, what, 12 years, but we've only been married for one and a bit. And on our first anniversary, which was paper, bought me a toilet roll. Yeah, but you know what? The one, let's be clear about this. Six months ago, that would have been a crummy present. Now, toilet <laughs> roll is probably still more valuable than gold. So just remember that. It was, it was actually a gold embossed toilet. There you go. Right. How forward happy, thinking. Happy anniversary on each sheet. Like, <laughs> I don't know what that says when you use know. it, but there you go. <laughs> it was pre-COVID as well. <laughs> right. Now, Phil said that we need to do a musical recommendation and a literary or reading rec recommendation okay well the music i'm listening there's a um laura marlin who i'm sure some people will know laura marlin is one of my favorite i'm, I'm so groovy and down with the kids emma <laughs> um i'm so in with the kids but it, it's basically because frank sinatra has not released anything new recently um so Laura Marlin, who I think is um, this generation's Joni Mitchell, has just released a new album called Song for Our Daughter, which is just unbelievably powerful. And really, although she, it's, a, it's, it's an album recorded for her imaginary daughter um, about all of the things that she needs to think about as she goes through her life as a woman. Um, is this the soundtrack to your smart book? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, and it is absolutely stunning. It's just a beautiful, brilliant, insightful, just a wonderful creation. So that's, I would suggest to people, Laura Marlin's Song for Our Daughter. Absolutely fab. Oh. 
And what are you reading at the minute? Well, I'm going to share a book that I uh, mentioned before we came on air by um, a woman called Dr. Lindsay Portnoy, P-O-R-T-N-O-Y. Um, and it's called Using Design, um, Using Design Thinking, Design to Learn for the Classroom. Um, and really, it's one of the most brilliantly informed um, understandings of the marriage between science and art when it comes to what makes great educators. Because it talks about, and she is a cognitive scientist um, rather than a teacher, but she talks about the misuse of cognitive science and how cognitive science should be used to truly help create a vibrant, dynamic, creative learning environment. She's an American, um, but don't hold that against her. It's absolutely brilliant. So Liz, Lindsay Portnoy, uh, Designed to Learn, fab book. Oh, I've written that one down. It's definitely going on my, on my list. Um, I can't do any musical recommendations because my children all week have just been listening to Bass Hunter. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like I want to tear my own ears off my head. Yeah, no, yeah. You need you need to take yourself away somewhere quiet, pretend you're working and listen to Laura Marlin. Seriously. High school music high school musical and bass hunter. Oh, but high school musicals, fantastic. high school musical. Fantastic. I do like high school musical. <laughs> was it Zach from that was in high school yeah. musical? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, before he developed a six pack. I think I can't remember. We don't know. He's as because at high uh, school, yeah. two and three. By the time he's in high school, he's three. I think he's about thirty-four. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was obviously kept back at school. Yeah, he spent too long in the gym. There's a lesson for us all there. It's a bit like in Greece, where all the characters are meant to be eighteen, but they're actually like. Yeah, I know. It's a bit disturbing, that isn't it? They're old yeah. enough to be your parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they've been doing that. And, and it's quite amusing because actually when they're listening to Bass Hunter, because Sam Strickland, because I run all the time and only wear Nike, he, he keeps singing Bass Hunter's Angel in the Night. So he keeps singing Angel in the Night. <laughs> 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 yeah. Thank you. Another Bass reference there. Brilliant. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you, Richard. Always a joy. And I, I genuinely hope that everybody who's kind of listen to what you've got to say, realises absolutely how ruddy marvellous you are. Oh, God. Has a box into, your <laughs> box into your virtual thing, goes onto your LinkedIn, or has a quick delve into one of your books, because they are absolutely fantastic. Just quickly give us the title of your books. Uh, so the first book was called Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today. That was um, really around the Grange story and the philosophy and then into practice. Um, the second book was called Change, Learn to Love It, Learn to Lead It, and was a more generic exploration of, <laughs> probably quite relevant at the moment, why people find change so hard and what we can do to be better at it. The third book, again, was a generic book called Simple Thinking, which was why do we overcomplicate everything and what can we do to simplify our thinking to find solutions and answers. And the last book, which was published last year, Education and Manifesto for Change, was my attempt. Oh, she's got it on the shelf. Yeah, it was my attempt to kind of thread yeah. the narrative of both with of highlights. Life. Then, with, oh, with you the have lining. look at yeah. that, yeah. And Properly was that read a... it. <laughs> Properly, Properly read, read it. it. Uh, so yeah, there they are. And the new one, which will be out hopefully in the next year or so, is the Smarts, <laughs> a life skill life skills toolkit for teens. Fantastic! It was an absolute joy to talk to you, Richard, as usual. Um. Thank you so much on behalf of Phil and the Nailers NASA listeners. I hope they find 
nuggets of wisdom, joy, and brilliance in everything you said. I know I've found loads today, so thank you so much. Okay, morning, Neil. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Phil. And this is going to be a strange one for listeners because uh, if you notice that I'm a bit more reserved in my manner this week, it's because I'm interviewing the boss. That's why I'm, in- I'm interviewing the gaffer. So, <laughs> so you might see me even more uh, deferential than normal this morning. So, uh, yeah, like I said, welcome, Neil. And thanks for doing this on uh, whatever day it is, Friday morning. Friday morning, yeah. Friday morning on the 1st of May. I keep saying this on the podcast because it's like capture the zeitgeist of where were we on the 1st of May 2020. Yeah. Well, maybe we should have done it on the 4th of May so we can uh, make a 4th with you before we did it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I should have got a wardrobe full of Star Wars costumes somewhere. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that. Right, we'll just start as we always do, Neil, if that's all right, with a gentle introduction. So if you can just tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey to this point. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, it started though when I was when I was younger. Um, I was obviously, you know, key footballer. Uh, I went to play professional football uh, at Plymouth under Peter Shilton and, and, and then later Neil Warnock. Um, and I remember, you know, kind of being a long way from home. And at the back of my mind, you know, people were always telling me I was a good communicator. I was, you know, there was. It was kind of, you know, I, I enjoyed doing work and assignments and coursework, etc., and kind of sail through exams. I don't know, and, and although I enjoyed football a lot, uh, there was something telling me that, that maybe one day I could, you know, maybe teach or coach. So I remember, you know, I did my chat at Plymouth and I returned home, and I got a job at the Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, counting, counting money, counting the old 1Ps and 2Ps. It was really boring, and I took a phone call on my lunch break. Uh, and, and somebody had said that they were recruiting for PGC students at Preston College. So I thought, oh, I've had enough. I've, I've had enough of Royal Bank in Scotland, and you know the football dream may be over. So I'm semi professional. So I took myself off to Preston College to enrol, uh, or have a conversation with somebody, and, and then enrol onto PGCE. Uh, it happened really quickly. You know, uh, I, I knew at the time uh, a guy called Jeff Snailham, who was the head of head of PE. In the in the uh, in the sports department at Preston College, and he said, you know, enrol on PGCE, and, and we'll get a job for you. Uh, and that was it, kind of. You know, I, I enrolled on it. I was doing I was doing night school. I was, I was training Tuesday, Thursday in football. I was doing night school uh, Monday and Wednesday uh, at Preston College, and, and quickly, you know, quickly became qualified. Uh, worked at Preston College had three great years there. But, but Jeff Jeff had come from. Uh, Secondary school background, he was head of year at Brownish St Mary's, and he used to say to me, Listen, my old, you know, what you call me then, you know, you, you, you love it, uh, you, not Kevin Keegan style, <laughs> you love it uh, in, in, uh, in, in a secondary school. Not that I want to lose you from here, but I think you'd be great. My wife, Colette, she worked at uh, Forward High School, as it was then, it's now Forward Academy. Uh, would, would you be interested in applying for, for a job there if one came about? And, 
you know, I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll try anything. I think I was 22, 23 then. I remember a job coming up, uh, first time round at, at Fullwood, and, and I went for the job. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't get it. You know, he was, I was up against a guy called Rodney uh, Toppin. I'll never forget his name. Uh, I was lad. He was cheaper than what I was at the time. And I remember uh, him taking the job. And um, Kath Moss, who's the head teacher, uh, she, she actually said that. She said that, uh, you know, he's cheaper than you. And, and uh, the rest was history. But then I recall, uh, round about Christmas, I don't know, Christmas, February time, I received a call from uh, Julie McCormick, who was Julie Perman. Uh, previously to that, he was Andy Perman's ex-wife, uh, to say that uh, Rodney, he's, he's going to be leaving, he's going to go back to Ireland. Would you be interested in reapplying for the job? And I thought, well, oh, not sure. I don't know if I can go back to Jeff and tell him that again. And Anyway, I, I Rodney went back to Ireland. I applied for the job and I was successful. Became a PE teacher. Uh, second year, became uh, a head of year. Uh, then became head of PE. Um and, and I was just kind of like seeking seeking success. And at an early age, at 30, became assistant head. 35, became deputy head. And, and then became uh, head teacher later in my career at, at Blackpool. But I, I spent 17, 18, you know, wonderful years at Fullwood Academy, uh, Fullwood High School. And, and if, it, if it wasn't, you know, for Jeff Snale and more than years ago to kind of direct me towards schools, then, then I wouldn't be here where I am now. No, and it's a brilliant story for the listeners. So, in terms of your football careers, very much continued alongside and being, you know, equally as successful as, as your career in education. So, we're going to touch on both of those different aspects as yeah. we go through. Um, you mentioned Blackpool there, so obviously listeners will know, you know, that I'm very proud to work in Blackpool and I've done for seven years now. So, if you can just, you know, Blackpool gets, you know, a, a mixed bag of a press, really, doesn't it? Whenever there's something about disadvantage, it's always focused on Blackpool, but. You're the same as me and obviously the people that we work with are very proud to work in Blackpool, but it does have, you know, its issues and its context. So just tell us a little bit about the context in which you work now and how you've gone about with your team transforming the school and improving the fortune for, for, for those students. So twice in my career, one being football and, and the other being teaching, I've been uh, warned off from taking a position. One was at FC United, which we'll go back to after because the club was in turmoil and there was lots of things happening behind the scenes. And when I was approached with the FC United manager, everyone said, don't do it, you'll you regret it. But secondly, uh, more importantly, the, the position of Blackpool, everybody says to me, don't work in Blackpool. You know, when I was in Preston, I've been there for a number of years and kind of like Blackpool was 20 minutes down the road. And, and, and somebody says to me, you'll never turn the school around in Blackpool. You know, it's a failing area. Uh, the local authority is X, Y, and Z. You'll never get teachers across the Blackpool. Uh, but I remember visiting uh, South Shore Academy for the first time before it was new building. So, uh, and the head teacher at the time, Jane Bailey, had, had invited me across. I never forget it. Uh, I arrived at South Shore about nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, not the entrance that you, that you know now, but when the old school was built, uh, it was kind of a, a daunting entrance. Uh, it, was, it was on the road it was on the main road there wasn't a lot of car parking facilities but I remember pulling up in my car and, and looking at it and, and forward at the time forward was a brand new build you know it was, it was exceptional I think it was 13, 14 million pound building uh, you know it was so it was luxurious to work there I put the down short I got out of my car and as I walked towards the entrance I thought, 
this is a decrepit old building from the 50s, 60s. But I was greeted with a horse outside the front entrance. And it was just tied up to the front, you know, and, and I heard about uh, Blackpool stories, etc. But as I, as I walked in, veered around this horse, and was trying to nibble on my ear. Uh, I walked into the entrance, and there was a traveller family there. And the mum and, and the son had a skateboard, uh, and the daughter, they travelled to Blackpool on a horse. You know, it didn't have a saddle on it. It was just, a, it was just this random horse outside. Uh, and as I, as I walked inside, this, this, this mum was sat there waiting for an appointment. Uh, but the son was incredibly rude to, to his mum. You know, he was only probably 12 or 13. He was, he was swearing at her. I don't want to come to school. I don't want this, that, the other. Now, listen, this, is, this wasn't even my first day, so I was, I was kind of just going there to have a look around. And, and, and many of people would have thought, well, probably would have turned around and, and reversed and gone, I'm not coming back here. But I didn't. I took it upon myself to say, listen, you, you can't speak to your mum like that. Your mum's trying her best. She's, she's brought you all the way here, uh, albeit on a, on a horse, on a, on a, <laughs> on a skateboard. Uh, don't speak to your mum like that. And he, and, and he turned to me, and which I've, which I've heard many times in my career, listen, you're bold, X, Y, and Z, and who are you to tell me? And I said, listen, I said, you need to respect your parents. Anyway, from, from, from that moment on, I remember that the boy changing his attitude and said, why do you work here? I said, no, I don't. Uh, but if I did, I'd, I'd certainly try and change your attitude. Um, and, and, I, and I just saw it as a challenge, you know. Like I said, many people would have run away from that, and, and I didn't. You know, I saw it as a challenge, and uh, I loved it. I absolutely I loved it. And I thought to myself, if I get a job here, I've got a real opportunity to change lives. Uh, and, and that's what I did. You know, that's what I did. And, you know, a few weeks later, I started at Blackpool. Uh, the, rest, the, rest is, the rest is history. In terms of that history, and, I mean, listeners will know this because I had an episode before Christmas when I was looking at, you know, making the leap um, with, with Jill Berry talking about kind of the next move. So I've been assistant editor, as you know, for 10 years, just down, just down the road. But, but you know, in quite a different context, uh, even though it was still within Blackpool. And then when I came, you know, you and the rest of the team were a big influence in, in me wanting to come on board at, at South Shore. I mean, one thing that sticks with me, Neil, is that you talked about a lot of the things that the staff have achieved in the time that you've been there. And we did a, an inset on in, in February, I think it was. That feels like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? And you talked about all of the things that have, that have been brought in by you and the team and really, really changing the school. I mean, what I didn't have, Phil, is that when I went to look around the, when I went to look around the school, it was, a, it was as a deputy head. Uh, I started the school. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, due to circumstances, the, the head teacher... Uh, left their post uh, under under quite uh, unfamiliar circumstances. I remember I remember being asked by John Stevens, who was a newly appointed chief executive of Brightfish Education Trust, if I would uh, if I would stand in uh, and kind of lead the school. Now at the time, Phil, the school was in an old building. It was, it was due to move into a brand new building. Uh, there was quite a, uh, a lot of political issues happening. The staff absence was very high. Uh, unfortunately, we just recently lost James Weddle uh, in the Manchester attacks. Uh, and, you know, God rest the soul. It, it was a really, really difficult time. Uh, I didn't know how, how long it would continue for. I recall, you know, we, we went into the new year. I, I kind of gave up my summer holidays. We we moved into this new building, but, but still not knowing if the head teacher was going to return. We got to the 31st of October, 1st of November, and, and I was informed that the head teacher wasn't going to return at the time and uh, would have been interested in applying for the job. So, 
you know, I didn't I didn't want to uh, be a head teacher nor did I have time because I was, you know, I was managing seven professional football, which which was a big big job. I was a deputy head, and you know, it was kind of a, a big, uh, well, a huge commitment. But I was kind of in too deep, Phil. I've I've been interim head for about five or six months now, and I really enjoyed it. And I've made promises to staff that I couldn't go back on. Applied for the job, January 2018, became the head teacher of the South Shore Academy. The one thing that was missing for me was the staff culture, uh, the, the kind of togetherness, the, the belief in, in what we could achieve. You know, there was, there was lots of members of staff that had been there that had worked in a failing school and thought maybe Palatine can't do this or South Shore can't do that. Palatine was the previous name of the school. And, and I quickly had to rectify that. And, and Ruth Cowell, uh, who is now my my executive principal, we, we spoke in her office at, at Martin Primary Academy one day and said, listen, we, we need to uh, revolutionise South Shore Academy, you know, starting with a, a full staff restructure. We need to look at the curriculum. We really need to change the culture. Now, I've worked in, in schools and colleges, so I've, I've met a lot of friends and uh, professional colleagues along the way. And, and I thought, do you know what? Through the restructure, I could probably bring some real quality uh, to the school because these kids deserve the best. You know, the Blackpool may get bad press, but I tell you now, it's, it's, it's the best place that I've ever worked and, and I couldn't think of working anywhere else. And I mean that. Uh, and we started on our journey, Phil. And the, the, thing, the, the big thing for me was turning around the staff culture and, and making staff believe in, in themselves and, and believe that they were good. And, you know, like all businesses, you know, there'll be people who fall by the wayside and you then get more quality in. Uh, and we did that, you know, brick by brick. We, we just chipped away at it. And, you know, fortunately, or fortunately, we, we've lost about 40 staff in, in my tenure, but we've recruited about 40, 45 staff who who were all exceptionally gifted and, and have certainly helped in, in our, you know, in our continuing journey at South Shore. But it, it's certainly a better place now uh, than what it was when I took over. And, and I'm proud to say that. Absolutely it is, and it's a great team to be part of. So I'm just going to get into the podcast, Neil, if we can, and we're going to talk about leadership. So obviously you've got yeah. you know, significant leadership roles both within school and outside with the football. But what I was interested in for listeners at first was, you know, what was what inspires you, who's inspired you to seek leadership in and outside of education? Um, they go hand in hand. You know, people ask me how I, how I have the time to do football and, and run a school at the same time. But from an early age, uh, an early age 30, you know, when my football playing days were coming towards an end, I'd, I'd, had, I'd had significant injuries to my knees and, and to my back, etc. But I, I really enjoyed communicating. I enjoyed taking sessions. I enjoyed leading people. And, and people used to turn to me and, you know, ask for advice in the football dressing room. And I'd spend, you know, hours uh, after the game talking to uh, committee members or chairman or players, etc. And, and I just, I don't know, I was kind of inspired. I thought I'd really like the opportunity to, to maybe coach others or lead others. That went, you know, hand in hand with my, my, my teaching. You know, I was, I was a PE teacher. I was a, I was a head of year. I really liked communicating with, with parents and, and the children. I remember being, you know, about 31, 32 when I, when I first embarked on my uh, senior leadership position at school. You know, I applied for assistant head job. Uh, I was up against people that had significantly more experience than me. But at the time, you know, my, my principal was a, uh, a gentleman called Richard Smythe. He believed in me. He said, listen, I, I like the way you work. I like the way you communicate. You, you 
wear your heart on your sleeve. Uh, you, you do long hours. You do everything I want in my in my leadership team. And he offered me the post. That coincided at the same time I was uh, playing for Bamber Bridge Football Club. And remember the time with the manager at the time was Cargill and Tony Greenwood. And he said that you know he's got the assistant manager, but you know his coaching days are come to an end. Would you like to be you know player coach? And, and I thought great. So I turned up on a Tuesday and Thursday. I was taking I was taking coaching sessions. Uh, I was turning up at school. I was I was now a leader in the school. I was I was I was over behaviour and safeguarding. And I don't know. My, my life kind of just turned, and I was really enjoying day to day. I was, I was down at you know Molly and Jack. Uh, Kind of just really enjoyed the, the leadership aspect, uh, and when I said it coincided, you know, when when I when I done three or four years as an assistant head, I remember a deputy head position coming along, and I applied for a deputy head role at forward, and, and I was successful in that. At the same time, uh, the player coach role was ended, and my, my playing career had ended, and Neil Crow had taken over from Tony Greenwood at football, and he offered me the assistant manager role, and my leadership qualities were beginning to grow, uh, and then. And then when when Neil Crow stood down as Bamber Bridge manager a few years ago, uh, I was given the opportunity to manage a football team. And at the same time, uh, the previous head of South Shore Academy had uh, left the position, and I was given the opportunity to, to lead a school. So kind of everything that I learned today just just complemented each other. So I became a, a leader of a school and, and a leader of a football club. And, and I believe that the the uh, the qualities that you've got to have. Uh, to do both jobs, just just go hand in hand with each other and, and complement each other so much. Definitely, and that's something we're going to pick up on later on. But one of those qualities is very much teamwork. So you're you know you're exceptional at creating really really strong teams and people that enjoy working together. So you know how do you go about creating great teams? You know in education and in football. One one vital lesson uh, that I was told. Uh, I remember. I'm going back a few. I'm going back a lot of years now. When I, when I worked under Richard Smythe, uh, he was a he was an old-fashioned head teacher. He worked in a, an independent school, York St Peter's. Um, he, he had extremely high standards. You never would have thought another respect to Fullwood. You never would have thought he would have left York to, to come to Fullwood. Uh, but, but he did, and, and, and he brought his exceptionally high standards. And he never made an excuse for uh, kind of replicating what he did at York. To what he was going to do at forward, despite the fact that you know you'd pay maybe twenty five thousand pounds a year to attend York St Peter's and and kind of we were struggling for numbers at York. He just had these really really high standards, and we we were we were at school one day and it must have been about six o'clock in the evening. But we we were we were uh, closing down an old site and moving moving into a new school, and we were in port cabins. And he never called me Neil. He never called me Sir. He always called me Reynolds. You know, he, he would always say, at the end of the day, it was just me and Richard in the building. He got Reynolds. And he came in uh, to my office and he was leaving for the day. And he said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just doing some paperwork. I'm putting, putting some stuff onto the computer. He had a, when he, whenever he worked to get his point across, he'd take his glasses off his head and he'd, and he'd throw them down. And he said to me, he said, listen, son. He said, I can see you going far in your career. He followed my football and he followed school. He said, one vital uh, lesson I'll give you, never, ever complicate things. Be black and white, uh, uh, say it as it is. And these head teachers or these football managers, it was, he said, they, they, can, they can do the badges, they can create paperwork. He said, for your sake, never complicate things. 
management, when I went into leadership, when I went to be a head teacher, just don't complicate things. You know, tell people as it is. Be a straight talker. Sometimes people don't uh, like being told, but certainly, you know, they respect you for being told. But certainly don't try and recreate the wheel by doing X, Y, and Z. You know, just 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 keep it simple. And, and I've learned that, you know, in football uh, and, and in school, just, just keep it simple. And, 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 and if you do, and if you're honest with people, you create good teams. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, I've, I've made it. Uh, but certainly if you look at, you know, schools where I've been uh, forward, we, we, as deputy head, I, I kept it simple. Uh, people knew where they stood with me and, and we turned that school into a good school. Unfortunately, since, you know, since I've left, it's, it's gone backwards for, for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and at South Shore Academy, I, I've certainly kept it simple and, and we've got a really good team and a really good school and, you know, we're motoring to, to success now. You know, look at our recent Ofsted uh, report. You know, we're, we're going in the right direction and we've got a great team of staff. We've got great kids. We've got great parents. And, you know, we, we, we're making strides. And if you look at my football my football career, you know, at Bamber Bridge when I was manager, we, you know, we got promoted against all odds. We, we won a cup. You know, the first bit of silverware that, that, we'd ever, that the club had ever won in, in 20 years. I then got a move to FC United. Uh, I was told not to touch that club for a number of reasons. We turned it around. and uh, You know, we were second in the league this season. But unfortunately, due to the pandemic, you know, what happened, we, we, we didn't manage to get promotion. But I haven't, you know, there's nothing miraculous or uh, life-changing about what I've done, Phil. It, it's just, I just like, you know, work with good teams, keep things basic, tell, tell, tell the truth. You know, be straight talking, and, and and people want to work with you. And it, and it's happened when you know in school I've, I've recruited 40, 45 staff that you know I've worked with in the past, and, and they trust me. And similar with football, you know, I work with a good team, uh, a good management team who, who trust me, and and good players, and, and people hear good things about you, and you know want to come and work for you. And uh, so so that's it really. You know, that's it. I mean, in terms of the straight talking, Neil, I mean, that, that's a really important thing, I think, in terms of leadership. So I've worked for various different people a- across the years, and this is not meant to be in any way a slight on anybody that I've worked for, but I've worked for some really direct leaders. I think of my first head teacher, you know, <laughs> I, I was going to mention her name, but in a good way, and she was so direct to the point of exactly what you're saying there. It was, if you needed telling, you got told, and I appreciated that. But on the other side of it, I've worked with head teachers who've almost apologised for telling you off and saying, look, you see, I really don't want to say this to you. Well, well, don't say it then. <laughs> you know, It's just the straight talking, if you're going to give me a telling off, do it. You know, If I deserve it, do it. You kind of respect people more for telling you straight because at least you know where you stand. And I just think sometimes people are frightened to hide behind, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not really telling you off, but yeah, I just prefer it much more direct. I mean, I don't know who told me this, this saying. I don't know if I've read it or it. But, but my mantra in, in all walks of life is it's never personal, it's professional. And if you've done something wrong or, or, or something great, you know, I'm not telling you to emotionally, uh, personally attach myself to you. I'm telling you because it's professional. If you've done something great, then tell them. And if you've done something that, that, that isn't great, then, then tell them. You know, I, I've been told that in my career. I've certainly been told that by managers in, in a football dressing room. You know, maybe people do it in different ways. People might shout and roar and throw things at you, you know, in a in dressing room, you know, kind of the things that people don't see. Uh, and, and, and other times, you know, you, you go into an office and, and you've just got to have one-on-one with somebody or, you know, with me, kind of like, you know, I kick my 
myself all the time, but when I have an SLC meeting, you'll know. I kind of just say it as it is, you know, and, and then and then maybe go back and, and then apologise to the people. But they, they'd sooner have that than, than me just bottling up and not saying anything at all. So, you know, if I am frustrated, I, I certainly won't walk the corridors looking frustrated, but I'll say it, you know, in the four walls. And once I've said it, it's done. You know, it's not personal. It's not because I, I don't like you as a person uh, or my team as people. It's just that sometimes I need to say it. Listen, it's not always right. Uh, and, and I'm not preaching to say that everything I say is right. Sometimes in the dressing room, sometimes, you know, at school, I, 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 I will certainly look back and think, I shouldn't have done that. And, I'll, I'm, I'm, and I will, I'll admit that, I'll apologise. I won't apologise over an email, over a text message. I'm not like that. I like to see the whites in their eyes, the whites in people's eyes. And, and I'll say it face to face, and I've done it at school, and I've done it at football. If, I, if I've made a mistake, I'll apologise. But, but I think people who know me uh, will certainly say, Listen, Neil Reynolds, the, the teacher or the head teacher, Neil Reynolds, the football manager, will will tell you what it is, and, and he'll never shirk that. And and I, I just believe that, you know, it's just crucial in every walk of life. And you know, people may not like to be told, but, but for me, for me, if I've done something wrong, I, I certainly like to be told. And you know, that that doesn't mean because I'm the I'm the head teacher or the, or the football manager that people below me can't tell me. So my deputy, yourself, Rebecca. If I've done something wrong or if I need to point in the right direction, I really like to think that I'm an approachable person and people could say, listen, Neil, have you thought about doing this or have you thought about saying it this way instead of that way? And similar to football, you know, what about doing this? What about doing that? And, and I'm always learning, though. You know, I'm always learning. And, and I don't believe that I'll ever stop learning or, or you know, never stop taking uh, uh, kind of constructive criticism or constructive direction. To, to help me with my careers. No, absolutely. And one of the things that we talked about is going to talk about the football as well. So um, I slipped it in a couple of weeks ago in an interview with Carl Hendrick and uh, Paul Kirshner about, you know, I don't like to talk about my UA for A licence, Neil, as you know. I never, I, never, I never like to mention it, he says, with it hanging next to him in the office here. Um, but, I mean, I learned a lot from football that I brought in, I mean, you know, without going into my life story, pretty similar to yours, bar the fact that I was absolutely nowhere near the professional standard of football to the point that people used to laugh about that because everyone's got a hard luck story in football, haven't they, Neil? You know, and I went I working at Burnley or Blackburn or wherever it was and they'd say, you know, oh, did you used to play? I'd just say, well, no. And they'd say, why? Injuries or what did you do? I said, no, I wasn't good enough. And they just used to look at you like, oh, okay. He's, at least he's honest about it. But I learned a lot from football that I brought into education and vice versa. So, in terms of your roles, what have you learned from football that you brought into education, and maybe what have you brought from education into your football? I mean, firstly, you know, it's proven with football that you don't need to be, you know, an exceptional player to be an exceptional leader. You know, Sven Goran Eriksson, uh, Jose Mourinho, uh, and even Alex Ferguson. You know, although he, he had a professional career in football, he, you know, they weren't exceptional footballers, but they were certainly exceptional leaders. And um, you know, just just thinking of yourself there, Phil. You know, you, you've you kind of touched upon the fact that, you know, you wasn't a professional, but you have them leadership qualities. I mean, I, I'm fortunate to work with you on a day-to-day basis to see that, you know, in particular in the pandemic that we are now, and you're leading people and people just just kind of, you know, levitate towards you because of your leadership skills. And, and, and I don't, you know, for me, it's not surprising that you've done your UA for A license and you've been involved in football and you've been involved in school. And, and for me, you know, talking to the listeners, that, that is what it's about, you know, communicate, if you're willing to learn, uh, if you're willing to, to better yourself, then the, the kind of, the, there is no ending to it. 
And, and, and for me, I don't, I don't really like talking about you know, the, the near realms of football, the near realms of school. Like, like I said you know, earlier in, in, in the conversation, I just don't complicate things, Phil. I, I just, I'm, it's a bit corny, this, but I am saying that uh, I wore an imaginary backpack during the day to her, you know, kind of Dora the Explorer, put my backpack on uh, in the morning. And there's loads of things that go in my backpack. But I'll either backpack it or I'll bin it. So if I learn something from somebody, I'll put it in my backpack. If I don't, if, if, if there's somebody talking to me or I see things that I don't really like and they're trying to educate me, I'll bin it. But there's lots of things that I put in my backpack. Uh, and my backpack, kind of like, I'll, I'll reach into it every single day and I'll pull different things from it. So if I've lost a game of football, is it time to lose it with the dressing room or is it time to actually feel for the dressing room and um, emotionally attach yourself with how they're feeling. You know, there will be times that I pull something out and it and will be uh, kind of a, a piece of dynamite because it's that time that, that you need to, to explore in the dressing room and tell people the way it is and it's to do with passion and, you know, your work ethic, etc. But there's other times that you've, you've got to pull something out that you know, emotionally attaches yourself to it. Similar with school. You know, with school, I, there'll be things that I reach into my backpack for and, and I try and help people with. Uh, and there'll be other times that I've got to reach into the backpack and say, listen, this isn't good enough and you're not for me. And and, and kind of, I let people go. But there's many things that, that are stored in that backpack. And uh, it may seem strange that I'm like telling the listeners uh, about the story uh, about a backpack, but it's true, you know. And, and if you reach down, there's, there's, many, there's many things that, the right at the bottom or right on the top of, of your backpack and, and and I can safely say that on a day to day basis I, I I feel this backpack uh and I know what's inside it. And at times you have got to dig deeper it and other times you you've just got to kind of reach inside and, and you pull that one thing out and, and it helps you it helps you get through the day and you know I, I certainly I certainly encourage other people that if they don't have a backpack to, to get one. Uh but, but certainly don't store rubbish in there. Store the things that you want and, and what you need uh, in there to, to help you get through a day. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm definitely going to be thinking about that um, next time we have an SLT meeting about, you know, yeah. high-vis jackets and backpacks. I think I'll be, uh, I'll be thinking about that. But, I mean, in some ways, I can understand exactly what you're saying. So even in the current situation that we're in, whenever I go into school now, I always put on, not not the full suit and everything else. I don't I don't get the waistcoat out for this, Neil. But I do dress in that kind of manner to, to be as if, right, I am in school and I'm doing those kind of things. So, you know, in terms of your backpack analogy, that's really interesting. But one thing yeah. I was going to say as well about football and teaching, it's interesting that a lot of people who've worked in football and then are in teaching as well are, are in PE, usually, and I did a little bit of PE, but also pastoral. Because that work in the dressing room, that work with players, that work on the on the you know improving people, it does lend itself nicely to sort of the pastoral role. And it's no coincidence that you've gone kind of that route, haven't you? Head of year, and then you've done you know behaviour, safeguarding, all those things where those interpersonal skills are really important. I mean, PE as a subject comes in quite a lot of criticism uh, when in schools, and any school banter, uh, kind of like oh, you're not not very clever. You go into PE, etc. You must have been a PE teacher. Uh, but it, it's, honestly, it's one of the things that you just learn how to, to lead people. You know, I shouldn't really say this, health and safety uh, regulations and all that, but many a times that I would have 60, 70 people out on the school field. Um, and how do you control 60, 70 people? You know, it, your PE 
words that you'd say, well, I'll collapse the groups and I'll take everyone out and, and we'll do javelin or we'll do discus or we'll do football or we'll do rugby. And, and you, you kind of find yourself with 60 or 70 kids on the field and, and then when you needed to communicate, you needed to quickly draw 60 or 70 people in and they need to listen to one voice and, you know, you need to be quite loud in, in that respect. And, and that, learned, that, that taught me, you know, about leadership, you know, bringing people in, delivering that key message, people hanging on every word you say, getting changed, getting people out of the dressing room, getting to the next lesson on time, uh, preparing for the next set of 100 kids that were going to come down, 50 girls, 50 boys, whatever it may, may be. You had to be leading by example all the time. You could never drop your standards. Uh, and, and similar with football, you know, you, you turn up for training, you'd have 20, 25 lads, you might even have a youth team, youth team coach and mate, you might have youth team training, you'd have a full pitch on, you know, kind of the, the 3G pitch, you'd have a youth team on one side, the first team on the other side, and you'd just be delivering key messages all the time. And, and it, it, they just, I don't know, they just, they just go hand in hand. And, you know, through, through school, you know, that, that, that took me down the pastoral route. I really enjoyed communicating with families and, and with individuals and, and social workers and um, key groups. Yeah, it, it was just, I, I just really enjoyed communicating with people. And, and like I said, people say, how do, you, how do you do both jobs? Well, I love, I love speaking to people. I love communicating. I love leading. Uh, and to me, you know, whether it's an eight-hour day, a 12-hour day, or even 18-hour day, you know, if I'm doing what I'm, if I love, then, then time is, is kind of, it's non-committal for me. I'm, I'm just doing what I really enjoy. And, you know, I, I finish school, I go to football, and, and I'm doing the same job. Uh, and, and I couldn't speak highly enough of your both jobs, and, and that's kind of how I do both. Brilliant, brilliant. So the next one I was going to talk about is a little bit of what you touched on there. So, I mean, I, I carried on football for as long as I could possibly uh, do that in terms of um, trying to do that and the schoolwork and the kids and everything else. But what what I did find is that it's actually really benefits you in terms of, you know, your own mental health. It benefits you in terms of wider interests. And I know that you've got lots of interest outside of both roles. But the question is, I guess, how do you manage to combine the roles? And just for the listener's point of view, this is, and nobody has got more energy than Neil Reynolds. I've never seen him <laughs> anything less than... He talks about back, back back a minute ago. It bounces in to SLT meetings. On the dot, by the way. On the dot, because it's a stickler for timekeeping. On the dot, like the Duracell bunny, having managed to do, you know, <laughs> five days of work, three nights of training, away games at the weekends, come back in. So how do you manage to combine the roles and how important is having outside interests and a bit of balance in your life? I'm with two children as well. So, well, exactly, uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not, uh, I'm not the perfect person. You know, things do, things do go miss. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I got divorced in my, in my personal life due to, you know, my number of roles and, and not being able to commit the time that I needed to do to my ex-wife. Albeit we get on, you know, really well and we've got two remarkable children. Uh, but, but, but I'm lucky so. You know, I'm a little lad, Jackie. He loves football. Uh, I think more than I do, if that's possible. He's he's like my shadow. So Tuesday, Thursdays, Saturdays, he comes to SD United. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, we're on the phone. My daughter Molly, who's, who's nearly seventeen, she works at SD United. Uh, she's like my, you know, again like my second, my shadow. Uh, we 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 spend so much time together, but but we're in we're in that mold, we're in that cycle that that kind of. Uh, you don't make excuses, you know. I'm 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 a I'm a believer that there are no excuses. So you know, you wake up in the morning, you've got your work to do. You you 
you've then got uh, a hobby in the evening, which is football. You've then got your kids. You know, many a times uh, I'll get up in the morning, I'll leave Preston, I'll drive to Blackpool, I'll go from Blackpool to Clitheroe, uh, I'll go from Clitheroe to Manchester, I'll go from Manchester to Clitheroe, and I'll go from Clitheroe to Preston. And that's all in one day. And, you know, within that day, I've, I've managed to uh, lead the school, I've managed to lead a football club, I've managed to see my kids. Uh, and I, I get so much from every day. I mean, I'm, you know, I am, I am the ultimate I love life person. Uh, but I, you know, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't change it. Uh, and I believe that it's great for your mental health. You know, I'm, I'm very, very, very rarely ill. I can't remember the last time I was ill. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting myself fit again due to this pandemic. I'm, you know, I'm on the go all the time, Phil. But it's what I like to do. It's what I like to do. And, and I say to people that. You know, if you're busy, if you keep your brain active, if you uh, kind of enjoy what you're doing, then, then you enjoy life, you enjoy your days. And, and even in, you know, these, these uh, challenging circumstances that we're in now, you know, I, I love life. There's nothing better than, than waking up in the morning. You know, and I find that a bit corny, but, but it's true for me, you know. And, and if I can make a difference and, and in, the days that I, in the day that I wake up, then and that's what I want to do. And, and I wake up every morning thinking, how can I make a difference? You know, whether it's with my children, whether it's a bit of football, whether it's in school, I always want to make a difference. And, and, and that's kind of what I do. And that's why I have the energy that I have. You know, there's nothing worse than if I walked into an SLT morning, you know, on the dot, like you say, and, and I'm grumpy or I'm down. And that kind of just reflects on other people. There's no point you walk into a dressing room being grumpy and down. That reflects on performances on the pitch. And certainly, you know, if I go to my children, there's nothing worse than being grumpy and down because they want to see the dad being happy. Uh, and that's what I try and do. You know, that's what I try and bring. And it's not a show. It's, it's what I've learned. It's who I am. And, you know, I, I want that for, for years to come. Yeah, and it has a knock-on effect on other people as well, like you say. I mean, you know, when you see that the, the leader and the head teacher is in smiling. And, you know, just for, again, for listeners' benefit, Neil's briefings are just legendary. Absolutely. We, we all look forward to briefing, don't we? Yeah, twice a week. It's absolutely brilliant. There's, there's always something to entertain us in those briefings, definitely. I mean, I've, I've sat through briefings with, with head teachers, and, you know, I remember walk, you walk in and you kind of walk out 15 minutes later, and there's a, there's a dull atmosphere. I always try and make sure that, you know, you enjoy seeing people, and there's always a, there's always a story to tell them that they'll be on a Monday or a Friday in staff briefings. Uh, whether it be a Tuesday or a Thursday at football, or whether or not it's seven days a week, you, you've got to you've got to be happy to see people. If you're not, then for me, there's there's very little point in doing what you set out to achieve. You know, and, and that's not you know that that's not me being kind of just wanting to entertain people. I just I just enjoy being with people and I enjoy leading people. And you know, I certainly know that you know once once I've been in a room, uh, I like to leave something. On somebody, uh, and listen, it's not always great news. Like I said to you before, Phil, here earlier in the interview, it's, it's not always great news. But as long as people know that it's never personal, you know, I never, I never come across and tell a good story about personal. It's always professional that I tell, uh, and, and put smiles on people's faces. But but, but other times, you know, it, it's not great news. You might have to release someone at a football club. You might have to leave somebody out on Saturday afternoon. You might have to uh, discipline somebody at work. You might have to. Uh, help somebody, uh, you know, improve the teaching. It's not always great news, but I just believe that if you tell them in the in the right way, in an honest way, uh, they'll, they'll respect you for it, and, and that's what that's what I try and do. Listen, it might not be for everybody, but but for me, you know, I I, I, 
I believe I, I generate good teams and, you know, I enjoy working with my teams and, and I certainly have two great teams in, in the one that I've got at South Shore and the one that I've got at FC United. Absolutely. So in terms of that, you've mentioned a couple of things there in terms of advice for aspiring leaders, but in thinking particularly about, you know, taking on headships because, you know, that's a, it's a challenging role. And I, I would think particularly, I mean, I know how hard you're working at the minute, it's particularly difficult at the moment with everything that's going on. So what kind of advice would you give to anyone who's aspiring to become a head teacher and maybe making that leap into leadership? So I've never I've never worked harder than what I did when I was a deputy head. I was five years as a deputy head and honestly I I take my hat off uh, to people who work under head teacher. They they I mean I can speak speak about you personally Toby because I know what you're doing on a daily basis. It's it's incredibly, incredibly challenging but incredibly rewarding. But you seem to just be working all the time. The significant difference is from when I became a head teacher, from when I became a football manager, it shifted. Uh, the workload shifted. Now, not in terms of you know what you do, because you know I respond to 250 emails a day. I'll, I'll, I'll write uh, I'll write school development plans. I'm, I'm continually working for the trust. I'm writing maybe business cases. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really busy. The significant difference is. Can you carry the pressure around with you and be able to poker face it uh, in a way that nobody knows that you're carrying it around? So if I, if I use football for an example, when I was assistant manager or as a coach, I'd be the first one into training. I'd set up my drills, I'd set up the cones, uh, I'd take the lads for the warm-ups, I'd, I'd, kind of, I'd, I'd do everything. And for two hours, it was me. What I didn't realise at the time, when I looked at the manager who was stood you know, on the sidelines, is that I think, what's he doing? What he was doing is carrying the pressure. He was carrying the can because on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock, my cones, my bibs, my poles, etc. everything I'd done in preparation for match day kind of gone out the window because everybody now, all the fans, um, everyone associated with the game, was looking at the manager. Could you churn out the results? Similarly with, with, with school. So I'd work Monday to Friday, I would I was grafted deputy head. I'd be doing X, Y, and Z, and, and I'd often see maybe the head teacher is leave before I would do, uh, or he would he would be maybe walking the corridors as I was I was you know on my computer. I'd be doing X, Y, and Z, or I'd be in parental meetings, or I'd be at meetings, etc. And he'd be he'd be kind of just like walking around. But what what I realised, especially from from Richard Smile, is that uh, with my head teacher before, and I, I mentioned before, he would carry the camp. You know, the results, when school closed at five o'clock, is everybody safe? Could he go to sleep at night knowing that, uh, you know, his students were safe, his staff were safe, he'd get there in the morning and he'd make sure that everyone was okay. He'd, he'd carry that pressure on. And I thought, you know, that, that's quite an easy thing to do when you're in that position as a football manager or as a head teacher. Wow, it's incredibly hard to do. So, you know, I'm not saying that my workload has decreased. The pressure has certainly increased. I'd like to think that I don't show it on my face. But, you know, going to sleep at night, uh, wake up in the morning, knowing that you've got 90 staff at school or knowing that you've got staff at, at football or turn up on match day and there's 3,000 fans watching. Who are they watching? They're actually watching, you know, you as a person, you as a leader. You know, are you, are you getting it right uh, on the chalk face? And, and that to me is, you know, if you can do that and step into headship, step into football management because there's nothing more rewarding than, than being able to say that 
you know, you've, you've got that team that will work for you. You're getting it right. Ofsted are saying X, Y, and Z. The regional schools commission are saying X, Y, and Z. The, the local authority are saying that the trust believe in you. Or similarly, you know, the fans are saying, great, you're getting it right. The, the, the committee are saying, yeah, you're getting it right. Uh, your team are performing for you on a daily basis. And listen, you don't always get it right, but don't let other people see that you're not getting it right at times or, or you are getting it right. Just just carry on doing your best and, and always wanting to be better. And and that that's what I believe, you know, and if people are aspiring to, to go into headship or, like I said, football management, then you carry the camp. Then you carry that pressure without other people knowing. And, you know, I'm a young head. You know, I'm 43 and I'm still learning. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning of wonderful people. Um, Stephen Tierney, you know, I, I love talking to him. I, I love listening to how he handles different pressures and, and never never complains about what he do. Or I listen to Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho. They'll never complain about what they do. They always want to be better. And, you know, that, you know, going back to my backpack uh, uh, energy before, that, you know, put it in there and, and that's what I want to do. But if you can do that, then there's no better career, you know, no better career than headship and, and certainly no better career than football management. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I'm just thinking we're getting into the last couple of questions, Neil, if that's okay. So um, this one's going to be difficult in terms of you've got so much that you can mention in this particular question, but what are you most proud of from your work from schools and what are you most proud of in, in your football career and your managerial career? Start with schools. Uh, I'm very, 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 very lucky to work with some exceptional or many exceptional people uh, in my career who've taught me uh, what I know today. Uh, go back to that straight talking. You know, I certainly wouldn't be where I was now if, if people didn't tell me uh, when I got it wrong. And I've got it wrong a lot of times. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story that I remember being a PE teacher at, at Fullwood uh, High School as it was then. And Whenever a student had to uh, kind of take off the jewellery before before a lesson, you lock it away as a PE teacher. And, and I recall this one time that uh, I hadn't checked the jewellery and we'd gone outside and we were about to do rugby and there was a lad, uh, he had his chain on, he had his chain uh, around his neck and, and you know, this, this story will tell me forever. Uh, and I said to Nick, Nick Burrows, I said, uh, Nick, you've got your chain on, can you take your chain off? Yeah, yes, so no problem. Uh, and I put this chain in my pocket and we were doing uh, rugby tackle pads. In fact, Andy Perman was, who uh, is my assistant head, was, was teaching with me. And, and I was showing the kids the, the, the tackle pad, but I knew that I had the chain in my pocket. So I took the chain out, I threw it on the grass um, and, and left it. And anyway, at the end of the, at the, end of the lesson, I forgot about this chain and Nick had come to me and said, uh, so have you, have you got my chain? I said, yeah, 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 it's in my pocket. I reached into my pocket and the chain wasn't there. I ran out of town to the field. And you remember film these days, teaching PE, the, the tractor, the local authority tractor was uh, cutting the grass uh, and the grass was great smell, etc. And I remember looking over and the, the tractor uh, had gone over the chain and splattered it into to many pieces. And I had to go back inside and, and, and explain to Nick that his chain had gone. His chain had... Uh, was handed down to him from, from his granddad. Uh, he'd been in the family for many years and, and I kind of, the chain had gone. Uh, and I, I recall looking at his face and I had to 
pick up the phone to, to his parents and explain what I've done. And, you know, to this day, I'll, I'll never forgive myself. Uh, but what it did teach me is that, you know, when you've got a set of rules, make sure that, that, you, that you, you carry them out. So before a lesson, make sure that you collect all the jewellery and you put it in a safe place. Uh, make sure that, that, that people uh, are fully prepared what they do and, and, and when you talk about uh you know what i'm proud of most is, is i am now the the ultimate uh perfectionist in everything i do and, and maybe i wouldn't be you know if it wasn't for you know the chain of nick burrows you know maybe i wouldn't be but, but i'm certainly the ultimate professional in everything that i do uh, and, and similarly when you, when you when you think of football i'd always say that I might not always get it right at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, but I certainly always make sure that I prepare uh, in the right way and, and, and I make sure that the other people are, are fully prepared. But, you know, it's, it's a strange story that when I look back and it kind of makes me sad uh, to think that, you know, I never put that chain uh, in the right place as it should have been. And, and that story will never, never, ever leave me. Uh, but it certainly helps me to, to make sure that everything that I do is Absolutely. Uh, just like I said, last couple of questions now. So we have these discussions sometimes at SLT, and I know that outside of your many uh, roles, you've also got lots of interests. So I know that you're a, a cultured man with lots of interests in terms of you know books, films, music. So you've often given me some suggestions. So I know you're making the most of lockdown. So just tell us a little bit about what kind of things you're doing during this kind of enforced period of being you know in the house and, and not in school all the time. Uh I wake up in the morning. I, I, uh, listen, I'm, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> I don't mind telling people this. I, you know, when when you're a manager uh, and when you're a when you're a head teacher, you, you often neglect yourself because uh, you're really busy. And what I realise is that you put a considerable amount of weight on. Uh, you know, I walk into school in the morning. I have a bacon bussy and I walk into into football. Uh, and the kitchen staff would make me. A big set of pie and have a pint after the game. I, I might go home and you know kind of do my work at night and I'd relax with uh, a big pint of fizzy coke or something that I shouldn't be doing. So what I've learned in the last few weeks is to, to start looking after myself. So I wake up in the morning. Uh, I've got into circuit training. Uh, I do a circuit in the morning. I go out on my bike. You know, I bought a bike about two years ago. Uh, one of these bike, uh, you know, bike to work schemes. It's kind of great at the time and. Kind of spent about twelve hundred pounds on it and all the gear with no idea and left it in the shed. But in the last six weeks, I've I've uh, I've, I've oiled the chains and, and I've got back out of the bike. I put all the put all the gear on and I've been cycling every day. I go for a walk in the evening. Uh, I see my kids during the day. You know, we go for a walk. Uh, but outside of that, you know, I'm, I'm I'm doing my work. I'm checking my emails. I'm I'm speaking to staff. We're doing welfare calls. I'm going into the school. Uh, you know, continuous speaking to people at the trust, but it, it, it just keeping yourself busy. You know, in the evening, watch a film, uh, go to bed, try not to eat chocolate and crisps like I used to do. Uh, just, just try and keep active. And, and it, it's, you know, in, in a weird kind of way, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed getting, I've enjoyed getting fit again. Uh, I think I've lost a lot of stone now uh, due to lockdown, uh, but I've, but I've also enjoyed. Uh, 
I'll talk to there's nothing better to talk to people. I mean, there's no better feeling than seeing people, but we'll talk to people. And I'm up there, I'm getting used to it. I can't wait for the day to return that. You know, I could walk into school and, and see a thousand people. I can't wait to walk into my dressing room and see the football team or see 3,000 people on Saturday afternoon. But I've just kind of, many people would go, I can't do this. But me being me, uh, I'll never let things beat me. Um, and I've just, just tried to keep active and tried to keep busy and tried to make the best of a, a really bad situation without, without worrying about it. No, definitely. Okay, so just the last one, if we may. Um, and I know that you talked at the beginning about the journey that the school's been on, but as the school expands and you know more and more pupils are, are coming into the school, there's going to be some new vacancies to come and, and potentially work with you <laughs> and me, listeners, if that doesn't put you off. Um, so could you give us a little bit more details? Obviously, I'll share those on the, the show notes, but we've got some some exciting positions up to, uh, to, be, to advertise at the moment. I mean, we're, we're growing as a school. You know, we... we talked about when I took over, uh, 270 kids on roll, it was a falling roll, uh, 22% staff absence, uh, we couldn't get maths teachers, English teachers, science teachers for loving the money, you know, we were spending, believe it or not, listeners, £250,000 a year on supply staff, uh, we, we wasn't in a good place, but as we've grown, you know, in the last couple of years, we've grown into... And, can't even tell you how good this really is. Uh, you, you have to see it to believe it. You know, I recall when I first joined the school. Uh, it was in the March, and we had a we had an Easter uh, an Easter celebration. I think it was a quiz at the time. Four people turned up for the quiz uh, out of a staff body of seventy or eighty, whatever it was. Then I can say, I can I can handle my heart now. Say that you know when we had a summer do last year, it's time to celebrate or we go out as a staff body, we have 80, 90% of staff now turning up, rubbing shoulders with each other. You know, it's not a case of coming to school and, and going home. People want to, people enjoy spending time in people's company. Last night, you know, due to the pandemic, there was a staff quiz that they did through uh, Zoom. Uh, and there was, I think there was 20, 30 staff that turned up on this quiz that Jamie Varley had organised. So, listen, the, the staffing is incredible. And, and it's certainly that reflects on, uh, the day-to-day running the school, they, they, they are absolutely so infectious about what they do. But like I just said, you know, we're growing. Still. You know, the, the days of 670 on a falling roll have gone. Uh, we've got another uh, full intake coming in in hopefully September if we return to school. We had 170, 180 uh, year sevens that arrived at school last year. Uh, and and we, we, we are quickly becoming the, the school of choice. And, you know, I, I, don't, you know, I don't apologize for saying that. You know, South Shore is growing. But as the numbers come through the door, obviously then the teaching positions grow. So when, you know, two years ago we had to do the restructure, we had to cut positions, etc. it's not the case now. You know, we're looking for uh, more humanities teachers. We're looking to uh, expand our math department or our English department. Or, you know, every department. It's, it's, we, we've got fantastic teams now. Two and a half years ago, we couldn't get a math teacher through the door. You know, we had Suzanne Best, who is my assistant principal, um, and she is the best, uh, but she was kind of working in isolation. We've now got a wonderful team that's led by Sam and Hurst, and you know Suzanne's part of that team now. But we have we've got positions coming up, and you know if you look at our website, uh, we've just recruited a, another math teacher uh, yesterday. Uh, we've just appointed a humanities teacher, uh, and, and we've got other vacancies coming up. And I, I just encourage people to to look at it. You know we we're going out for for teaching heads a year 
in, in September, we are looking to grow our MFL faculty. We're looking to grow our PE faculty. So there are, you know, the, the jobs, there's jobs going to be about, but as more kids come into the school, then more jobs are going to be needed. And, and what I want to do is, is get the best. And, and it's not just, when I say get the best, though, it's not get the best on paper. It's, it's get the best fit for the school. You know, do people want to come and work for me and for South Shore Academy? Will people give everything? And, you know, I, I don't mind saying this, well, you know, although you're interviewing me, you know, you left uh, a, a wonderful school uh, in, in St Mary's and you decided to, to come to South Shore and, and your appointment for me uh, has been transformational. You know, people look at Phil Naylor and go, why did he want to go to South Shore? You know, Phil Naylor, the, the, the ultimate teacher and the, the ultimate person on social media and people look up to, he, he or you, you know, you took that, you took that leap, you took that leap of faith and came to South Shore and, and it's people, or it's people like you or it's appointments like you that, that make other people think, you know, what's going on at South Shore Academy? I want to be part of it. So, you know, keep your eyes on the website. Uh, like I said, there are positions that are going to be available and as you continue to grow, we're going to continue to expand the staff body. All I would say to you is that, you know, if you've got that bit between your teeth, if you've got that, that thing to, to want to make a difference, uh, then come and apply for a job. It's not always easy. It's, it's a tough school, uh, but teaching's tough, but teaching's so rewarding. So, But if you've got it, then, then, then come for it and you'll be joining a, a great staff body. Absolutely. And just to go on uh, to what you said there, Neil, in terms of, you know, I mentioned about you being influenced and becoming in the first place, but the, you know, the, the team of people that you've got working in the school, it's absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting when you mention social media there. And then obviously people have a certain perception, don't they? But, you know, we, we are very much trying to, you know, yes, bring stuff through social media, but also we're trying to do the job day to day as well, aren't we? So we're not just talking about stuff. We are actually trying our very best to do it as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great place to work. And if anyone is interested in those, I'll put those up on the show notes as well for the, for the list of vacancies at the moment. Neil, it's been a pleasure to speak to you this morning um, for, for two hours because we did the SLT meeting for an hour beforehand. So yeah. uh, you'll have had enough of speaking to me by the end of this. But thanks very much for this morning. Real pleasure to speak to you. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be seeing you very soon, no doubt. Yeah, thank you very much, Phil. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers. Miller's Nectar, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Nectar, just talking to teachers.